Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Last week we ended our focus on the section of Revelation we considered by talking about prayer and witness. A little time later I got a text from a colleague of mine in ministry. We minister in different places and so we communicate mainly through text. Uh, name you will know, Lee Vinden. Lee and his wife Margie had a wonderful seminar on G- all about Jesus here at our church some years ago. Reflecting on that focus of prayer and witness, Lee wrote, Conclusion for us, time with Jesus morning by morning and speaking of the peace that passes understanding. Could we have missed something in Revelation? He then quotes Ellen White. When we as a people understand what this book, Revelation that is, means to us, there will be seen among us a great revival. We do not understand fully the lessons that it teaches, notwithstanding the injunction given us to search and study it. He then points out that that statement was written to Seventh-day Adventists, people who think we have a corner on Revelation, and yet it says, we have much to learn that we have not learned. And then... Listen to Lee's questions. What has proving who Antichrist is done to bring about a great revival among us? What has pointing out false churches done to bring about a great revival among us? What has fingering the papacy done to bring about a great revival among us? Could we have missed something? I will tell you this. Over the last year and a half or two of doing a deep dive into the book of Revelation, I can tell you that my love for the tender God of Revelation has deepened and has been transformative in my life. I've come to the conviction that what she said is true. But we have to let the book truly speak. So notice some of the sevens as we talk about faithfulness today. The sevens where we have been started out with the seven churches, chapter 1, verse 9, to chapter 3, 21. We move then from the seven churches to the seven seals. The seven seals are outlined in pardon me, chapter 4, verse 1, to chapter 8, verse 1. And then last week, we went on to the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets' tale is told in chapter 2 to chapter 11, 19. And then there is a pause, an interlude, a blank. But at a certain point, the seven trumpets of the sequence of sevens begins again with the seven bowls. And that's in chapter 15, verse 1, to 22, chapter verse 5. So you have four sequences in Revelation of sevens. And you have no doubt noticed as we move through it that while they may, some of them, cover similar terrain, they do so with a different emphasis, a different focus, and a different message. The other thing you've probably picked up that is very true is that as we move through these cycles of seven, they get more intense, more comprehensive, more deadly, and more global. So there is definitely an intensification as we move toward the end of all things. You've also noticed that Revelation is 22 chapters long, and so by the time you start in chapter 1 and end in chapter 22, you've talked about the 
the book, pretty much. So these sequences of seven form the book. So then the question is obvious. What about this blank space in the middle? Why do the sequences of seven suddenly stop? Why does the focus shift and change? Because in chapters 12 to 14, it's very clear that we're talking about the faithfulness of God's people. But something else is even more clear, and that is that here we have a thumbnail sketch of the cosmic conflict in chapters 12 to 14. So what is going on? What is happening here? And what does it mean for us here today? First of all, Revelation is written, argue many scholars, I think accurately, in a chiastic structure. That's drawn from the Greek letter chi that looks like an X. Chiastic structures appear throughout the Bible. You're familiar with that kind of a structure in poetry or another writing. It has corresponding sides as it builds toward a pinnacle. A and then A1, B and B1, C and C1, and then you arrive at the pinnacle, which is the main point, the key point. In fact, a very simple chiastic structure in Scripture that's, that we know well is Jesus saying, the Sabbath was made for human beings, not human beings for the Sabbath. You have the Sabbath and the Sabbath, then you have human beings, human beings at the pinnacle of the structure. That's the key point. What Jesus is saying is human beings are most important, even more than the Sabbath. That's a chiastic structure. When you look at Revelation as a chiastic structure, these chapters are at the heart. This is the heart. This is the key message. We can't miss this message. The cosmic conflict in miniature. Now, before the cosmic conflict begins, we read a text. We read part of this section last week, but we didn't read this specific text. Revelation eleven eighteen, that is part of the closing part of the last section, also gives us a thumbnail sketch of what is to come. It, in other words, outlines the final events of earth's history what is to come in the future from that point in time so we go to revelation 11 chapter 18 it says the nations were angry and your wrath has come the time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants the prophets and your people who revere your name both great and small and for destroying those who destroy the earth not the most uplifting text you'll ever read but it gives us a sketch of what is to come. So remember this. We've talked about the central role that this seven-sealed scroll plays in the book of Revelation. And we have noted the fact that until all the seals are broken, we can't read the scroll and discover its contents. The seals have now been broken. We began to see something of what was inside last week. But this, what is to come is the content of the seal of the seven seal scroll and this also is what the future looks like as human history moves toward the establishment of the kingdom of God so why then is that verse so important well it starts out by saying the nations were angry that is a prelude to what is going to happen in chapters 12 to 14. 
It says the time of your wrath, referring to God, has come. And that refers to what happens in chapters 15 to 18. And then it says the time of judgment, of judging the dead, of rewarding people, etc., has come. And that delineates what happens in Revelation chapters 19 to 22. That verse is a prelude saying, here is the roadmap for what is about to come. The nations will be angry, and it will be a time of deep testing of God's people and of their faithfulness. Your wrath will be shown. Now, what does that mean? Those chapters, 15 to 18, are tough chapters, including the battle of Armageddon. What does it mean, the wrath of God? Especially in light of what we've been talking about throughout this series. We don't have time to linger here, but I will say just a couple of things. Number one, Sigmund Tonstad in his excellent commentary on Revelation makes a compelling argument that the wrath of God is what happens when God steps back and allows the mudslinger to fully show his hand, have full control, full reign. This is wrath as he steps back. And then, remember Romans 1, talking about the wrath of God. The wrath of God, as my dear friend Ivan Blazin used to say, the wrath of God indicates that God is a gentleman. And for those who consistently, insistently, persistently refuse anything to do with God, there comes a moment in time when God says, all right, have it your way. This is somewhat like a marriage. I heard somebody talk about this, and I thought about it this last week where I was talking about something with Anita that Anita done ha- needed to have. We've got to do this this way, really. And she said to me, go ahead. That is not permission. That is saying, have it your way. I didn't do it. <laughs> In a sense, that's the wrath of God. Go ahead. I'm a gentleman. And when that happens and when... The mudslinging slander has his full way. This is what happens. And then judgment. Judgment. This is what happens at the very end of history, bringing this rebellion to a conclusion, establishing the kingdom of God to the place where one pulse of harmony, as Ellen White says, beats through the vast creation once again. We tend to read this word negatively. But please... If you're a Jewish person being killed by the Nazis, and finally the allies show up and say, we're going to have a judgment, you fall to your knees and say, thank God. Somebody's going to hold them to account. So that's the thumbnail sketch of what is to come. So our focus today is right here. We're going to, there's no way we get through all of this. We're going to focus a lot on 12, a little bit about 13 and 14. But I want to start with 12 and verse 1. So remember, cosmic conflict in miniature, starting with the birth of Christ. Chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant 
and was cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, a quote from Psalms. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. So the story begins at the time of Christ, the birth of Christ. This woman clouded, clothed in, in the beauty of light and sun and reflected by moon. Everything is good and right and pure. It represents the people of God, both Old Testament and New Testament, as we continue the story. And she gives birth to the male child. In fact, the whole Christ event is covered in one verse right there, verse 5 again. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So it begins. The Messiah comes. The dragon is intent on destroying the Messiah, wanting to devour the baby as soon as it is born. And the power of Rome did just that. But it didn't unfold the way the dragon desired. There was certainly the birth and the life, but then there was the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension. All of that is highlighted in that one verse. And then the woman flees to the wilderness. Now, something happens next, which is compelling. In that context comes three verses, come three verses, that we have often said, oh, these happened all the way back here before the world was created. But I think there's, a, there's strong textual evidence to suggest that's not the case, but that it happens sequentially with the Messiah's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. This is what comes next. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Leading the whole world astray, deceiving the world, a work that began back in Eden with a talking snake, casting doubt on God. From Eden, it is all the way down to this point that we finally get the identification of who that was. Now, there's textual evidence, and not just here in Revelation, that it was at the time, at the moment of the cross, that war breaks out and the dragon is hurled to the earth. How could that be, you ask? Remember, the mudslinger's work, the accuser's work, is to slander God. We get a few, two or three little glimpses in the Old Testament that that slanderer still had access to the throne room of God. Job 1 and 2, Zechariah 3. They're accusing, they're pointing out, they're contending, trying to convince people. Now, if you happen to be at last night's Revelation series, you heard Jeff Rosario give an excellent presentation where he talked 
a bit about this. Notice what happens in verse 7. Then war broke out in heaven. War. It's an interesting Greek word. The Greek word is polemos. It's the word from which we get polemics. Argumentation, conflict, controversy. Arguing one side and arguing the other side. Maybe an attorney trying to win a case and convince the jury while the other side's attorney is doing the same. Or politicians, heaven help us, in the season we're entering into, polemically fighting with each other. That's the word. Then war. Sigvitonstad makes a compelling case in his commentary that that's what happens in heaven with continued access until the moment of the cross. The cross is the moment when the argumentations for in heavenly intelligences ceases because everything is revealed now. There is no hiding anymore, any subterfuge, any slander that will catch ground, catch traction. Do you remember that moment, that child dedication in the temple when, when Mary and Joseph have Jesus in their arms and that ancient gentleman named Simeon totters up to them with his cane, takes the baby in his arms, says, this is the Lord's Christ. And then he turns his large, roomy eyes on Mary, filled with tears, says, a sword will pierce your soul. A clear reference to the coming cross. A sword will pierce your soul that the thoughts of many hearts might be revealed. In other words, Calvary will be the moment when the thoughts of hearts will be revealed. It's the moment of clear exposure, of disclosure, of openness. The ruse is over. The disguise is ripped away. There is no more hiding because you know what the mortal enemy of slander and subterfuge and mudslinging is? It is this, revelation. When it is revealed, you want to know the grandeur of God? Look to Calvary. Do you want to know the evil of Satan? Look to Calvary. Do you want to know the magnificence of God's love? Look to Calvary. Do you want to know the depth of the enmity, of the hatred of Satan against God and everything to do with God? Look to Calvary because at Calvary, everything is revealed. There are no more questions about the purposes of this slanderer. And so the war, the polemical war that rages at that moment is lost, and he's thrown out. You're done. But if you lose the battle against the parents, what is your best avenue to still hurt them, if not the children? And so now the dragon refocuses his energy on the woman. He is enraged, filled with fury because he's a defeated foe. But heaven help me, I'm going to get them to get to him. Revelation 12, verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. 
The woman was given the wings of two, two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, notice how often in this battle the mouth is the source of issues. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed a water, water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the water that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. So now the woman is on the run, being persecuted, being hounded. I'm going to get you. Telling lies about who this is, what the belief of this body of people is. I'm going to destroy you. But is unsuccessful. As one historian put it, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. And it rose and became stronger and more faithful, which is the focus of chapter 14. Faithfulness was stunning. But the dragon is nothing if not one who is able to morph and to change. And that's why I say be careful in too closely and certainly identifying the dragon in human terms. People have done that throughout history and have been right and have been wrong. But the dragon changes the dragon's tactics. This is stunning. So the word wilderness appears three times in the book of Revelation, twice here in Revelation 12 where we have just read it, and once in Revelation 17. Woman appears again. After we leave her here in chapter 12, fleeing to the wilderness, she disappears until chapter 17. And then both woman and wilderness reappear. Notice what it says. 17 verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. Wilderness. There I saw a woman, woman, sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns. What happened? The woman, chapter 12, chaste, clean, pure. Chapter 17, the mother of harlots, Babylon. What happened? I will tell you. When I was a young pastor giving Revelation seminars, this woman was used to teach that we ought not, and this is serious, I'm not trying to deride, just tell you what happened, 
that we ought not wear jewelry because she clearly is the evil woman and she is decked out. I'm sorry, that has nothing to do with the text at all. In fact, John Pauline will tell you that the jewelry, the, the stones that she wears and the colors that she wears are reflective of the vestment of the high priest in the Old Testament. In other words, the way she is pictured here says this is religious leadership. This is a religious entity. This was the people of God. And John, the Greek is strong. The Greek says John was astonished with a great astonishment. Could this be the same woman? What happened? What happened? Well, it appears that what happened we go back to chapter 12, is that what the dragon could not accomplish through persecution, the dragon accomplished through seduction. I can't beat him this way, but I'll get him this way. So what was the seduction? Could it be that the seduction was the siren song of political power? That the church would be able to accomplish what it wanted to accomplish, not by persuading minds and winning hearts, not by the transformative power of the gospel, but through the might and power of the state. We will control, we will win. Forgetting that in chapter 5, the message was the way God wins this cosmic conflict is with all the might of the lion, but with all the methods of the lamb. This woman is not using the methods of the lamb. She sits astride. She rides on the beast, the political power. The church is guiding political entities in control. That's why it's spoken of as adultery. This is an illicit relationship. God never intended for his kingdom to be spread by the power of the sword. Never. That's why we as Seventh-day Adventists have historically, and friends, this worries me in our current time, have historically stood for the separation of church and state. We will not be part of a woman riding the beast, guiding the state. Adultery, it calls it. So let me say a word that's going to get me into trouble. You can email me. <laughs> dmace at luc.org. <laughs> get right back to you. Enter COVID. COVID. I've heard it. I've seen it. You've heard it. You've seen it. Listen to it. Read it. It's the mark of the beast. It's the end time. This is what's happening. This is reflective of Revelation. Two things I would say. Number one, anytime religious liberty is threatened in whatever form and for whatever reason, we stand against it. No question. I understand many saw that. 
as a religious liberty threat. Many others didn't see it that way. They saw it as a pandemic. But if there is reason to believe our religious liberty is being infringed upon, then we resist that. Now, second thing. That wasn't this. That was not Revelation. In Revelation, you have the woman riding and guiding the beast. The church entity, some kind of religious power, is in control of politics and leading it. We saw churches fighting it rather than guiding it. Now, you'll say, well, there's other stuff behind the scenes. I grant that. I certainly don't know it all. But I will say, we stand for religious liberty, and the concern here is when a religious power is guiding the state and in control. So now we go back to Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commands of God and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Went off. John Pauline helped me much with this in his writing. Just picture that this is a stage and a play is taking place and one of the main characters suddenly went off stage, disappeared back there somewhere, and is gone. And you're saying, well, what, what happened? Where? The dragon went off. Dragon's tactics are changing. Now two more figures appear on the screen, on the scene, that the dragon will use to accomplish the dragon's purposes. That's Revelation 13. The sea beast and the land beast. Dragon isn't so visible now, but the sea beast is and the land beast is. Who are these beasts? John Pauline and Ranko Stefanovich make a compelling case, among others, for the fact that this is an unholy trinity, a counterfeit trinity, trying to appear as God. Now, I'm going to put in a moment... Three tables up on the screen. I'm going to tell you right away, they're too small to read. I opted to keep them together just so you could get a sense of the extent of what is said about this. You can go to our website, face page. You can click. You can see the, 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 the tables and read them at your leisure this afternoon. First one, dragon or Satan and God the Father. This is the impersonation, if you will, the counterfeit of the Father. Just notice the parallels. Both are in heaven. Both have a throne. Each gives power, throne, and authority to someone else. Dragon or Satan to the sea beast. God the Father to Christ. Both are worshipped. One is destroyed forever and one lives forever. There is a parallelism between God the Father and the dragon. The parallelism increases when we come to the sea beast and Jesus the Son. Notice the extensiveness of this. Both begin their ministry out of water. Sea beast resembles the dragon. Jesus is the, is the clear image of the Father. Have diadems, horns, receive power, throne, and authority, slain, both of them, come back to life, resurrected, received a, a worship after a mortal wound, and on it goes. This is an impersonation of, of the Son. And then finally, the, whole, the earth beast and the Holy Spirit. Earth beast called the false prophet, spirit called the spirit of truth. Earth beast, lamb-like, spirit, Christ-like. 
Earth beast exercises all the authority of the sea beast. Holy Spirit exercises all the authority that Christ has. Earth beast directs worship to the sea beast. Holy Spirit directs worship to Christ. And on it goes. You can read it this afternoon. But the point is, there is a counterfeit trinity that here as we move toward the end of all things becomes key in what is unfolding, key in trying to deceive God's people and trying to compromise their faithfulness. So what do we do with that? You know what the truth is? You look at that, you consider that. It's scary, isn't it? It's frightening. Read Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2. has a very similar kind of case to be made for someone, something that appears to convince people. I'm Jesus, the slanderer, the mudslinger at work, insinuating, accusing, throwing people off, compromising their belief and thereby compromising their faithfulness. So what do we do? Here's what we do. Here is the one thing we do. We follow the Lamb wherever the Lamb goes. So what does that mean? It means that as disciples of Jesus, we invest ourselves on a day-by-day basis with His Word and with prayer, with one request, Jesus, I want to know you more. John, I think the same John. In John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus wrote and said, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the goal. If you want to know the real, forget the counterfeit. Study the real. Follow Jesus in his ministry. Open yourself to his teachings. Pray that his his grace and his spirit and his character will be formed within you because Jesus said this. He said, my sheep know my voice. They know me. People who know and intimately walk with Jesus, when a counterfeit shows up, says, that is not my Jesus. That is not his voice. I'm listening for his voice. That's where I will go. Two two quotations, both from the pen of Ellen White. I want you to put these quotations against the backdrop of what's happened to God's people, about the false trinity, and about the faithfulness spoken of in John in Revelation 14. First one is from the book Christ Object Lessons. Put this in the context of earth's history winding down, the sands in the hourglass of earth's lives running low. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Human beings are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Pay attention to that. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is what? Telling who all the false churches are, telling who's going to come after us, who the beast is. Not that those don't have any importance, but here it says the last message to be given is a revelation of his character of love. 
That, you say, is my Jesus. I know his voice. That is not. The children of God are to manifest his glory in their own life and character. They are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. Amazing. Or what about this quote? Now, I've, I'll be honest, I've changed a word in this quote. I've taken the word obedience two or three times out of the quote and have inserted the word faithfulness. doesn't change the meaning of the quotation, but it puts it more in the context of what we're talking about here. So listen to these words from Desire of Ages. I first came to know of this paragraph through the preaching of Morris Vinland. Life-changing to me. All true faithfulness comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, that when being faithful to him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. The will, refined and sanctified, will find its highest delight in doing his service. Now comes the sentence, the sentence that was life-changing for me. When we know God as it is our privilege to know him, our life will be a life of continual faithfulness. That places knowing God, said Vinden, as the cause and obeying him as the result. Through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God, Sin will become hateful to us. So morning by morning, we follow the Lamb by kneeling before Him. Please, live in my heart and my life. Show me your will. Show me your ways. Form me into your character. Let me go on your missions, missions of mercy today. I want to know you when we know God as it is our privilege to know Him. And then, when this becomes the critical issue, what do we find? Our lives will be lives of continual faithfulness because we're following the Lamb wherever the Lamb goes. I want to know you. Reading through my Bible again this year, read it through every year for, I don't know, 30-some-odd years read it a couple times. But I'm telling you, the journey this year has been profound. It's been a rough week. This morning I just prayed, God, show me your will. Show me your ways. Show me what you wish to do in me. And as it's been true so many times, Something emerges from the text. And in that, I hear the voice of my shepherd. It's our experience as followers of the Lamb. That is the reason we can look at this and say with John, perfect love cast out fear. Do not approach this with fear. It's a horrible motivator. Approach it with growing love. So you know, I'm a Cowboys fan. I know something about the bumper sticker that says, I feel so much better since I gave up hope. 
Some years ago, the Cowboys had a player named Jason Witten, a person of character from all I could tell, highly respected in the NFL, a leader on his team. There was a running back, very good running back, led the NFL one year or more, later went on to play with a couple of other teams, named DeMarco Murray. Jason was DeMarco's workout partner. After DeMarco had moved on to another team, the Cowboys drafted somebody in his same position named Ezekiel Elliott. Now, it's tough. You come out of college, you're 21 years old, millions of dollars, and all kinds of adulation and spotlight are thrown your way. No wonder some of these players crash and burn. I couldn't handle that at my age, and I'm over 21, believe it or not. <laughs> and so DeMarco Murray gave some advice to Ezekiel Elliott. Ed Werder, the sports writer, tweeted it out. DeMarco said, here's what I would say to Ezekiel. When you get to Dallas, find number 82. Find Jason. Follow him. Listen to him. Do what he does. Act as he acts. If you find him and if you stick with him, you will be okay. And without knowing it, a sports writer gave us the message of Revelation 12 to 14. Find the Lamb. Stick with him. Do what he does. Listen to what he says. Go where he goes. And you will be okay. Because in doing that, you will be intimately aligned with the tender God of the apocalypse. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.